This is the 966 episode <laughs> 66. Richard, hello. And we enter laughing. I guess it is. Isn't that a Joan Rivers? Uh, I think that was a, the the story, the, the title of her memoir. Maybe enter laughing. Well, anyway, well, we just we should, did it on episode 66. As we always mention, we should just be recording the pre-recording <laughs> and then just not record this because it's way more entertaining. That's why we usually enter laughing because we have to start this at some point. Um, Richard got a really good conversation coming up with Robert Mogulnicki. Uh, just really awesome. We discuss a bunch of stuff with Robert, Neom, Vision 2030, uh, Special Economic Zones. We kind of go out China at the end. We kind of go all over the place with him, and it's really fun. He's such a great guest. Uh, we will be talking shortly about the new figures globally on how many people are living on this planet, 8 billion of them Indeed. and counting. Incredible. Talk a little bit about Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's trip to Asia this week for the G20 and in South Korea um just a great episode coming up richard before we get going please subscribe to us wherever you're seeing this or listening to it helps us out mr wilson let's get going hey yes how you doing i'm doing well thank you very well it's always nice to be together and have a good laugh yeah always Um, (laughs) yes and robert mogonicki is is uh you know now a repeat guest uh and and as he pointed out, it was probably too long an interlude to uh, in between his last uh, appearance on the 966 back in December. But he's really, really well versed on all these issues as a political eco- political economist. So he, he, a, a good discussion. My what did one you call big, it, Richard? Oh, you, you, you called it putting on the jacket, the green. Uh, did you say the jacket for the jacket, your jackets in the, the jacket? Mail. Yeah, we got to get those made. <laughs> we have hilarious. to get them designed and made. Uh, I don't know what colors, you know, you have a green jacket like Augusta. <laughs> uh, but um yeah we'll have to come up with a 966 jacket or some sort of swag uh maybe it should be a beanie or something but anyway yeah, something yeah we said coffee mugs before <clears throat> jacket jacket could be get, nice might be a little expensive but I, yeah i think the imperative here is cheap so <laughs> it may be a coffee mug or a uh or actually you know let's go with with, with the ubiquitous flash drive my one big thing as you alluded to it seemed irresponsible not to acknowledge that in the same week as the g20 in indonesia where climate was a top issue and the cop 27 in egypt is ongoing where climate is the only issue the global global population ticked over the 8 billion mark um it's a notable milestone in and of itself, but there are innumerable data points surrounding this number that make it even more remarkable. Um, first, <clears throat> as a reminder, and it's always good to be reminded, we Homo sapiens have only been on Earth for roughly 300,000 years. It seems longer, doesn't it? Of course, you're, you're a newborn dad. That seems long. pretty long, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have two, two youngsters. Uh, um and in the year one of the Gregorian calendar, there were about 230 of us on Earth. Uh, we hit the 1 billion mark 1,800 years later, the 2 billion mark 125 years later in 1925, the 3 billion mark 35 years later in 1960, the 4 billion mark in about 1975, and then 5, 6, and 7 billion marks about every 10 to 15 years. This last increase from 7 to 8 billion took 11 years. So uh, during my mother's almost 90 years on Earth, hi, Mom, the the global population has grown by roughly 6 billion people, which is staggering. 
Um, the United Nations projects world. The United Nations projects world population to slow down a bit and top out at 10.4 billion in the 2080s. Uh, after that, it'll flatten out and then expected, anticipated it will decline. The generally accepted replacement number, magic replacement number for fertility rate is 2.1. So if, you know, obviously if women on average have more than that, you have population that grows, fertility rates are lower, population shrinks. Uh, in recent years, fertility rates across the globe have declined of, of the 44 countries in a, in a Mercer CFA institutional global pension index. And I think it's interesting that this is done by an insurance thing because these global population rates, I mean, actuaries and insurance people are really paying attention. Of the 44 countries in the 2022 uh, survey that they did, only six have a fertility, fertility rate of 2.1 or higher. Um, and in fact, uh, the United Nations has noted that global population is currently increasing at the slowest rate since 1950. Um, a couple numbers, Australia, 1.7 births per woman, Japan, 1.3, the U.S., 1.6. South Korea just broke the world record for lowest fertility rate at just 0.8 births per woman. Um, MENA, the Middle East and North Africa region, is has plummeting birth rates. In 1980, it was 6.2. In 2020, 2.7. Um so, and many countries are expected to have smaller populations in, in 2050. On the flip side, Africa, one of the fastest growing places on earth now, uh, by 2050, I mean, by 2100, is it protected to have 38% of global population in Africa, close to 40%. Um, interestingly, in this terms of the growth going forward, by 2050, almost half of it is coming from just eight countries several of them in the region that we cover. Um, in Africa, there's five of them, Nigeria, Tanzania, Ethiopia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Egypt. The other three are India, Pakistan, and the Philippines. So those eight countries are, are, are pumping out kids. Um, uh, India is about to take over the most populous country on, on earth from China. And one more factoid, and then we'll close it up. Um, for every thousand babies born today, roughly five of them will be born in the Oceania, Oceania region, you know, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Pacific Islands. 52 in Europe. Russia leads that grouping with, with 10, you know, out of the 1,000 babies. 160 in the Americas. The U.S. leads that group with 30. Here we go. 326 in Africa. Nigeria leads out of 57, 511 in Asia, with India at 172. So that means basically going forward, 85% of new births will be in Asia and Africa. And you remember our good friend Afshin Malavi has been on this for a long time. <clears throat> we have to get Afshin back on because um, uh, he really looks at these major twins and, and has talked about them for, for some time. So anyway, 8 billion people on the planet on the way to 10 plus billion if we can avoid nuclear Armageddon, uh, more global pandemics, climate collapse, or a zombie apocalypse, um, you know, may the odds be in our favor and, and and good luck, human race. Yeah, pretty cool. Eight billion people is a lot of people. Um, <laughs> Richard, the this is a really good one because this is 
very important to every person on the planet. This is not just Saudi focus or U.S. focus. It matters to everybody on the planet. Um, I'm sure you saw this as well. The Washington Post is an interesting thing. It's like a age calculator, and then it, it is cool. Yeah, it's really can, cool. Can, we, we'll, we should have a let's link. Put a link. Yeah, because yeah. um, I did this. We were talking about this, and I, I uh, yesterday put my stats in. Thirty-seven-year-old uh, man from the United States of America. There are 2.3 million people like me. <laughs> So I'm not special at all. In the U.S. In the U.S. There are 2.3 million Americans that are male and 37. Um, 59% of the world is younger than 37. So I'm now on the older half of the world. That's pretty depressing. I'm I'm older than half of the people on the planet. Um, 57.9 million 30-year-old men on Earth. So I'm one of 57.9 million people. There are a lot of people on the planet. I mean, this is it's staggering. uh, It's incredible. You know, because my ego is more fragile than yours, I did not do mine. I did do my daughter's, and and I think she's very special. But there's only there's only you know twenty year old females. There's only one hundred twenty one million in the in the world. So. <laughs> that's encouraging and also very depressing at the same time. I think that's how it's supposed to make you feel, Richard. The interesting thing you mentioned is the birth rate in the Middle East. And it's sort of something we've been seeing you and I anecdotally over the last few years. Haven't really talked too much about it on the 966, but Saudis are having fewer children. Um, and so that that's reflected in the birth rate. There are, according to the World Bank 2020, uh, Saudi women are having 2.24 births per woman. Um, and that's down from 7.3 births per woman in 1977. So, and we've, we've seen that with Saudis sort of my age and a little bit younger and then older having many children and then newer Saudis that are uh, just now starting to have children are sort of balking at having two, you know, more than two or three. Um, just interesting how this is all shaping up. But yeah, I mean, just like you said, and Afshin has been all over this, this is going to change so much in the world. So it's a very important statistic and very important to be aware of. Yeah, uh, a fascinating milestone, and and it was actually kind of fun looking at it. So it's uh, as you say, it affects all of us, and 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 it you know Saudi Arabia. I mentioned the MENA regions. It's interesting the Saudi Arabia. The MENA region I mentioned is from seventy went from six. I mean nineteen eighty went from six point two to today two point seven. You see, interesting the Saudi the the numbers you mentioned. Obviously, that's one aspect of the MENA region. Mm-hmm. Their decline has been even more, it, yeah, as compared to the MENA region. Like you said, you know, seven point seven in nineteen seventy seven down to two point four. So you know, uh, so even within the decline in the MENA region, Saudis has been even more precipitous. Mm. Yep, very interesting, and that obviously has a huge impact on government policy, housing, a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, it touches everything really, because I mean, it's you know very. I, I, I yeah. mentioned I mentioned actuaries and insurance, you know, retirement, pensions, food production, urban planning, transportation, workforce. Oh my goodness, it goes on and on. Everything, yeah. And you know, and we might come back to this actually in one of the yellows today. But uh, yeah, this is a uh, this is a fascinating topic. This was fun. This is yeah, that's a big thing, Richard. You chose a very big thing for your one big thing. That's it's the <laughs> biggest one of the biggest things, um, Richard. My one big thing this week. Um, Saudi Arabia is sort of looking eastward to Asia. Asia is looking right back. A couple storylines that just tie into a big old mashup like we like to do usually for our newsletter for SUSTG.com. But just a lot going on here. First, uh, MBS and several ministers, officials 
uh, from the public and private sector are currently on a days long visit to Asia started with Indonesia earlier this week where the G20 held its summit uh, for 2022 really um, again we love plugs and we're sorry to do so many of them but our newsletter for SUSTG.com slash the review daily newsletter has so much good coverage of this um, this week just just makes it so easy for you to digest it and see it. Um, check that out. Pretty interesting declaration, Richard, that was uh, mentioned at the end of the summit. A good piece from CNN we included, sort of recapped it all. But strong language in there condemning the war in Ukraine. Leaders agreed on a 17-page document. Major victory for the U.S. Uh, and its allies who have preached, uh, excuse me, so who have pushed to end the summit with a very strong condemnation of Russia, which is, of course, one of, one of the members of the G20 who almost certainly did not want this in and they had their stated disagreements with it. Um, the uh, statement said that there was definitely a rift among member states, but sort of a big deal that that got included. Um, after the G20, MBS flew with his entourage of officials and business leaders to South Korea. There was a blitz of deals between the kingdom and Seoul. Blitz of deals, Richard, I, I've seen that. I, I've never seen blitz of deals, but I sort of like that as football season. Um, so Really cool, but there really was a blitz of deals between Saudi Arabia and South Korea. 30 billion at least in total, according to some reports. Some reports have that higher, but just to name a few, $7 billion expansion of the Shaheen Petrochemicals Refinery in South Korea, Aramco's biggest investment there. South Korea's industry uh, industry ministry, which I'm reading now, and that's a funny combination of words, industry ministry said uh, <laughs> companies including Samsung CNT Corp, POSCO Holdings had signed over 20 agreements with Saudi counterparts in fields such as energy cooperation, railways, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, gaming. Additionally, Korea Electric Power Corp, KEPCO, four other Korean firms signed an MOU with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund to build and operate a hydrogen and ammonia production plant in the kingdom. Uh, a, a, com a company source told Reuters at about $6.5 billion. Um, and we'll come back to green hydrogen here in yellow, Richard. On the G to G level, Crown Prince MBS and South Korea's President Yoon Suk Yeol held a bilateral meeting. Uh, and the South Korean president said he hoped the two nations can expand cooperation. So really um, uh, a strong visit from, MA from MBS. There's the Saudi Korean trade uh, event today put on by the Ministry of Investment. Um, what I find interesting about this, Richard, I was doing a little research on this whole visit. A report from Yon Hap News Agency, which is South Korea based uh, from October, said that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had shelved plans to visit South Korea. So that was, what, six weeks ago. And now it's back on and now there's all these deals going on, which is interesting. And then lastly, Richard, throwing this in the mix, and I don't want to bury the lead, but we do ask Robert a little bit about this at the end. But China's President Xi Jinping is expected to visit Saudi Arabia at the end of this year. You sort of have both Prince Faisal bin Farhan, um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and his predecessor, Adel Al-Jaber, hailing the historical and solid relationship between uh, Beijing and uh, and Riyadh. It's really interesting, Richard, because I haven't really seen historical relationship with Saudi-China used as much as it is used now. I mean, that may be drawing a little bit too much out of this, but Saudi-Chinese relations really began in 1990. So... It's historic in that I'm historic as a 37 year old, but um, and now part of the older half of the world. But um, just and that makes me prehistoric. <laughs> um, just interesting. There is a lot of a lot going on between Saudi and Asia. 
um, especially this week. And then in general, um, just wanted to kind of wrangle it all together here. Um, but just an interesting time. I think that's a good wrangle. And, and, uh, I, I don't have a lot to add to it. It's is other than it's, uh, it's curious to watch MBS nowadays. Um, and it's also interesting to look at it in the context of the current sort of beef, not beef, but misunderstanding with the U.S. or, or recalibration with the U.S. and that Saudi Arabia is looking to be seen as an independent power. And it's, you really see it here when you go, when you look at this, you, you know, consider MBS's reality right now. He's in, he's in Indonesia, Jakarta for the G20, of which Saudi Arabia is the only Arab member. Very prestigious. Um, he is now traveling about engaging in diplomacy as the prime minister of Saudi Arabia. Um, and we've talked about this, um, you know, beginning sort of in the, uh, with the Alula declaration in January 21, uh, 2021, and followed by, you know, a whole slew of high level meetings, you know, involving MBS, including the US, UK, UK, France, Russia, Turkey, Egypt, and soon China. Uh, you know, it's, uh, <clears throat> there's a, there's a weight now, and, you know, for many people there was anyway, but I mean, there's clearly, clearly a weight, you know, the, the prime minister of Saudi Arabia is, uh, rolling up in, in South Korea and, and overseeing $30 billion worth of deals, many of them very critical, you know, $7 billion, uh, close to $7 billion investment on Aramco. I mean, this, this you know, commitment to come do a, a green, this is a green hydrogen plant, you know, with uh, South Korean impetus and investment on the East Coast, the Gulf side, um, looking at a 2029, you know, you know, turnkey, um, but uh, so it's it's just it's a different world, I think. And, and and again, as we've talked about before, the Saudis see themselves differently. And certainly um, there is a weight as MBS to, to MBS's diplomacy now that there wasn't two years ago. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, South Korea. What, 12, uh, 12th in the world in, in total GDP. I mean, they're huge. They're absolutely massive. And they are leaders in spaces that Saudi Arabia is very interested in attracting and, and partnering mm -hmm. with. Um, but that's just a really good point, Richard, about um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman being head of state now. It does add that extra weight and that extra gravitas. I mean, that's I didn't think about that. That's a really good point. I mean, he's he's now and, and this is not his first trip as head of state, but it's his first trip to Asia as head of state. And it's um, and his first G20 as head of state. So, yeah, very, very interesting time. Um, yeah, South Korea, I mean, a leader at Samsung, technology, energy. We've talked a little bit about power and, and U.S.-Saudi energy cooperation on the nuclear front, Richard, um, and how because of one, two, three agreements and other issues, the U.S. is going to miss out on chances in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere. South Korea doesn't have the same problem, and they're almost certainly getting involved with that. Green hydrogen is another thing. So there's enormous amount of... Uh, of potential there. And so, yeah, very interesting. Richard, what do you think? Shall we get to our awesome conversation <clears throat> with Robert Mogul, Mickey, who is just Absolutely. so good, he'll, very he'll talented. Us, you know, we, we, what are we actually, what, are, what have we talked about? We've talked about, you know, global population and, 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 uh, and, you know, major diplomatic initiatives in, 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 in Asia. Um, Robert will continue this global approach and give us further insight. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Joining us now on the 966 is Robert Mogulnicki, a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, adjunct professor at both Georgetown University and GW in Washington, D.C. Robert is a frequent contributor to a number of publications and is often quoted in major news outlets around the world, including recently CNN, AFP, France 24, South China Morning Post, and many others. Perhaps most importantly, Robert now joins the esteemed ranks of repeat guests on the 966. (laughs) Robert, welcome back. Great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be back. Your your repeat guest jacket is in the mail. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to be asked to to come back because it's been some time and I was worried I did something wrong the first time around. But uh, those fears are now gone and uh, happy to, to kick things off again. Well, and justifiably so. And Lucian always does a great job with introductions. But I wanted to add a little bit because you you run quite a run here. Um, uh, you, in addition to all that Lucian said, you know, as well as your your work at uh, Arab Gulf states and you know and professor professors professor professorial positions. That's why Lucian does a great job in introductions <laughs> at GW and Georgetown. I want to add, you're you're an external consultant with Eurasia Group, member of the board of advisors of Henley and Partners, uh, global citizenship and reference advisory firm. That's Henley Partners. You're a term member of Council of Foreign Relations and my old shop, Middle East Policy Council. Recently named you as one of their forty under forty most influential Middle East experts. You've had a good run, and on top of that, you you're you're a, a, a new father. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The MEPC, um, I know that they're doing a new round this year. I was um, in one of their their first years. It's a good outfit. It's nice to be part of that group. But yeah, what's been keeping me most busy the last few months has uh, certainly been having two two twins or about a half a year old now. Yeah. So, And um, I think I think we can all agree that essentially this run of good luck was launched following your appearance on the 966 last December. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Let's talk about you. You're really you're. Uh, we love talking with you, Robert, and we're glad to have you on. I mean, you're just such an interesting space. But uh, let's let's talk about political economy just briefly, if you can give us sort of a context, because you know, essentially, you're you know a, a political economist that focuses on the Gulf, which t- to me seems an extremely interesting place for the, for looking at political political economy. Can you talk a little bit just about your milieu? you know, and, and, and why it's so interesting when you look at the golf from your perspective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, maybe I should start at, uh, at AGSIW, the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. So that's my, my day job. Um, and as you mentioned, I do oversee the political economy portfolio and how I explain that to people centrally is like this. Um, there's bread and butter issues. You have trade, investment, labor markets, commercial regulations, energy markets, um, and a number of other issues that I'm looking at day to day, week to week, month to month. And you can find you know, publications, shorter articles, and longer research reports and events uh, to that effect. But then um, that role allows me also to step back and say, okay, beyond the nitty gritty bread and butter issues, what are some of the broader developments and the broader trends that are also critical factors shaping the region's political economy? And a few years ago, when I started at the Institute, I launched a next-gen Gulf initiative, which the reason behind that was essentially to take a deeper dive into technology trends in the region, to look at digital economy, to look at cryptocurrencies, uh, and look at a range of, of other uh, tech and digital issues. 
to essentially determine how these uh, broad issues and trends are impacting both the governments and the economy. And that's the way that this kind of we bring this back to political economy, looking at the political impacts, but also the economic impacts and how they interrelate. Um, and then more recently, I launched a similar initiative, but on a different topic, looking at China Gulf relations. And that's what I refer to as the China Gulf Initiative at the Institute. Again, that's another issue. There are a lot of different ways you can look at political economy in the region. And it's not to say that technology in China are the only or the most important issues. But to my mind, they were issues that just certainly that weren't getting the coverage they deserved, given the impact that they have on the region's government and on the region's economy. So in a nutshell, uh, those are the that's the broad range of topics and, and intellectual activities that are keeping me busy these days, especially at the Institute, but also across a number of those other affiliations that I have, whether it's in academia and the private sector um, or in other uh, with other think tanks and, and, and with uh, good folks like yourself. And you, uh, Arab Gulf states in Washington does tremendous work, and we frequently cite uh, their publications in our daily newsletter. Um, and you were recently, uh, they recently um, presented their uh, pet uh, their Petro Diplomacy Conference, which That's is right. a really a good confab and uh, well worth it. Um, you were on an interesting panel, I thought, some with a number of people who've been on the 966, including Hussein uh, Ibish and, uh, and Kate Durian. And uh, you mentioned something. We we're talking about Saudi Arabia. And you, 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 you took the perspective. You said Saudi Arabia was moving from uh, a conceptual phase into an implementation phase in terms of their economy. Can you elaborate on that? I'd be happy to. Yeah, that's that's right, Richard. And just to, to flesh out the context there, the panel that we were on was at the end of the Petro Diplomacy Conference. And we were talking about the OPEC plus decision to uh, slash uh, oil production um, uh, quotas. Uh, and of course, you know, here in Washington, the sense was that that had a severe and uh, substantial political motivations underlying that decision. Um, but then in the region, uh, especially in Saudi Arabia, we got the response that this was purely uh, a, an economic decision related to energy markets and the overall well-being of, of energy producing countries like Saudi Arabia and other members of the OPEC plus group. Um, so here, uh, in many ways, I'm looking for I like to look for uh, a harmony between political and economic forces. But here is a great example where there seemed to be a, a very clear contradiction um, in, in terms of political and, and economic motivations, at least when you looked at how the U.S. and Saudi uh, counterparts were, were looking at this issue. Um, but what I meant by the the transition from the conceptual to implementation stage uh, is I believe was in reference to the Neo Mega Project, but it can actually be applied to a lot of what's going on in Saudi Arabia under Vision 2030. And to, to understand exactly what I'm getting at, we really have to go back a few years to um, when Mohammed bin Salman launched Vision 2030. There was essentially a grace period to my mind um, that followed the launch and the announcement and the, the launch in the early stages of Vision 2030. And really for the next few years, 
um, Saudi officials and economic policymakers were able to continue to generate buzz by launching new initiatives, launching sub-initiatives, uh, enhancing the initial plans of those original uh, mega projects. Um, you know, jumping on various global bandwagons and new trends like the what I, to my mind is an incredible and rapid um, focus on ESG and environmentally friendly initiatives. Um, and this you know, comes at a good time with COP uh, with the COP uh, 27 happening in uh, in Sharm el Sheikh, um, I believe, as we speak. So. Mm -hmm. All of this is going on in Saudi Arabia. They had a couple of years of a buffer again, but I would say that this is happening under a period of uh, a conceptual a conceptual stage. But eventually, the rubber has to hit the road, and the concept the concepts have to move to actual concrete progress on the ground and implementation. And when that was really supposed to happen. They had an additional excuse because COVID came around and threw everyone across the globe um, into, uh, you know, completely off kilter. And really from 2020 until most of 2021, um, much of the region was focused purely on domestic, urgent economic concerns, stabilizing their fiscal policy, ensuring they had enough funds to, to you know, make sure the government continued to run, to make sure that uh, essential services were continuing to function. Um, so that was very much the focus in 2020. There was a domestic focus, urgent domestic concerns. 2021 was how do we turn these economies around? And, I, you know, throughout that entire time, Vision 2030 was still there, but you know, I think it would be very unfair for for our, for any observer, any analyst to come down too hard on uh, Saudi officials to say, well, you're not making substantial progress in 2020 when the world and Saudi Arabia is dealing with the, you know, uh, with the coronavirus pandemic. But in many respects, with that behind us now, we're as we're wrapping up 2022 and we are several years away from the launch of Vision 2030 and all of the major flagship projects that are part of Vision 2030. I'm willing to say and throw down the gauntlet here that it's very clear to me there needs to be some tangible progress across a wide range of issues and in a number of specific projects um, in Saudi Arabia. And that's, uh, to my mind, this very tricky uh, transition from concept to implementation. It is. And we talk a lot about uh, implementation on the 966. And I, Lucian, you will remember when they announced Oxagon, I had a little bit of a rant. And uh, to your point, Robert, it's like, we've got enough. You know, there's all these big, let's let's start seeing some progress. But I think you make a very good point that everything was a bit on hold during the, the pandemic and, and uh, other priorities came to the fore. Um, do you have any so you've you've noted in your research that there you know, the the vision 2030 sort of identifies 24 major projects within its portfolio you know they might and they're not necessarily gigger but they're major do you, do you see any particular sector as as moving ahead um or as that is going to be so for example we talk about we when you look at tangible results that the, the red sea development work is impressive they're there they're not there yet, but they're they're poised, uh, and you can actually see what they've accomplished. Um, you know, obviously things like tourism, which is a, a separate thing, they're, they're making real progress. Yeah. Um, how is and and I think this is interesting. I'd like to get into it because just for the, the listeners and the viewers, 
um, Robert uh, published in 2021 a, a, a book called The Political Economy of Free Zones in Gulf Arab States. He's working in a new edited volume, which I'm quite interested in, on sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East and Asia. But uh, with regard to NEOM, you know, they've broken, uh, you know, they've broken uh, ground on the line. They're going to get the 2029 Asian Games for Trojana. Um, we don't know where Oxagon is. Uh, anyway, there's any number of things. How is NEOM progressing, in your opinion? Yeah, well, it still appears to be one of the flagship projects of Vision 2030 and one of the most important, at least to my mind, components of the public investment funds portfolio. Uh, there's incredible amount of activity going on, uh, if not necessarily um, uh, concrete and uh, committed investment pledges from international investors. There certainly is a lot of uh, of support and financing available from the Saudi state uh, that is supporting and allowing the uh, Neo Mega Project to to move forward. Um, there have been a number of announcements uh, uh, recently, in, including the Neom Fund of about I think the plan for that fund is to have about eighty billion dollars in it as an incentive, a nice little uh, goodie bag money pot uh, for companies that are operating in Neom to, to take advantage of it in some way, shape or form. I don't think the exact mechanism about how um, that, uh, th those financial resources will be dispersed has been clarified, but essentially it's a, you know, it's a large fund uh, to, to use as a, as a carrot to encourage greater, uh, greater participation in Neom from local, regional, and, and international firms alike. So there's a lot of momentum and a lot of buzz, uh, you know, and 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 I do suspect that Neom is one of these one of these initiatives that is not just going to fizz, I mean, it's not just going to fizzle out. It's going to be very, very difficult for Saudi officials and planners to allow and and come to terms with a neo becoming a white elephant because just so much political capital has been invested in this project. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's not just part of vision 2030. It's not just, uh, you know, a, a major mega project under the public investment funds portfolio, but the crown prince himself has gone on record in, in the few kind of recorded official um, uh, interviews that he's had to speak directly to Neom and his plans for Neom in the future and how he plans to finance it and how uh, it's going to redefine a number of different sectors from tourism to um, you know, to to heavy industry, um, into you know, and into uh, a number of other technology enabled sectors. So, um, I, I do. I look across the region. And I see a number of other major initiatives. You, you could look at Oman as a good comparable example. Their special economic zone in Dukum, for example, has had these massive, uh, ambitious aims, and not a lot has materialized yet. Um, some people are looking at that and saying, "Well, this might, you know, this might become a white elephant," but in many respects, the the, the Omani government um, looks at Dukum in 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 a very similar way that the Saudi government looks at uh, Neom. Uh, this is, according to my analysis, anyway. Uh, the Dukum Special Economic Zone was was created after um, 2011, after the Arab Spring protests, and the government found it you know incredibly important to encourage development and show to demonstrate that they were encouraging development in underdeveloped parts of the country. Um, so there are you know 
it, it's a it's a different type of political motivation than we see uh, underlying Neom's uh, development in Saudi Arabia. Um, but I can see if I look at those two examples, I can see you know two two mega projects that are you know intimately intertwined with the political ambitions of of the leadership. Now, of course, you know MBS. Um, he hasn't quite, uh, you know, transitioned. He hasn't quite transitioned to uh, to become, you know, the the monarch of Saudi Arabia yet. We do have you know, a new sultan in in uh, in Oman. Maybe I'm taking, I'm stretching the uh, the metaphor and the comparison a little too long. So we'll go back to your question. But uh, you know, it is an interesting thought comparison comparing the two projects. But it's a it's a fair statement, and we have Saudi friends who uh, refer to white elephants. And, uh, you know, that Dukham and, and Neom, I think that's right. I, there's, there's so much prestige involved that, it, you know, there's going to be every effort to make sure they don't fail. But the, the question for most, so many of these is where is the financing going to come from? And, and so, for example, Neom is just just to align themselves with Lazard to, to, you know, send out Lazard to say, let's sign, you know, how are we going to help finance this in addition to what we're kicking in? You know, the, the mining industry, they just announced a $32 billion initiative. So much of that is going to be, well, hopefully that's our goal. The people will invest, you know, the, the lion's share of that. Um, is this investable? Are these things investable? I know you're not an economist or a finance guy, but just in your terms of looking at things, um, that's sort of what has to happen for this to flip over into a sustainable and, and you know, a really successful projects. It seems quite clear to me that the financing for Neom over the short term is going to continue to come from uh, from the Saudi Arabian government and the state. Uh, this is um, what has been happening uh, since the launch of the project. This is what we can glean from um, from the reports and from media uh, about you know the the financing that is allowing this project to continue to to move forward. Of course, when we were in a situation, uh, an economic situation with oil prices you know, for a very brief period of time moving into the negative territory, but you know, looking low and, and volatile, uh, there were very genuine and legitimate concerns about the viability of the state continuing to be the primary financier of this mega project. In addition, uh, to all of the other obligations uh, that the Saudi government has, and you rightly pointed out, Richard, um, if you look at aviation, if you look at tourism, if you look at logistics, if you look at mining, just to name a few, and I'm sure I'm missing you know, a dozen more, uh, we're, there are multi-billion dollar strategies and initiatives and projects being announced almost on a weekly basis beyond these um, these a number of mega projects that have been in the works for years now and will require billions of dollars um, you know, for the foreseeable future. So I guess to answer your question about whether Neom is investable, um, I would say that certain components of the project um, appear to be generating significant excitement um, across certain segments of the international investment community. But there still is a lot of concern about how all of the pieces are going to fit together. Because the way that this project has been constructed is not necessarily um, is not necessarily that uh, you know each individual piece can be an investment in and of itself, and if that one piece succeeds, 
um, you know, it, it'll justify the investment. I mean, really, there is this sense that this whole project has to come together, the various components. I mean, it's building a new, essentially building a new city or even some, in some cases, it's almost been defi- uh, defined or described by planners and officials as its own city state. Uh, and we might see some regulations coming out um, that, that do give it a certain um, you know, distinct a distinction from uh, from the from the base economy, but um, you know we're all waiting to see how this is going to come together. Because um, if you don't get the tourism component right, if you don't get the um, the kind of leisure and entertainment component, if you don't get the uh, the heavy industry component right, if you don't get the you know the communal component and the linear development right. Um, the project, uh, when you break it into various different components, starts to make a little bit more sense. Uh, if everything succeeds, you say, "Wow, that's um, that 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 might be something." But that, of course, just makes the whole the whole initiative that much more difficult for for the planners. So, um, and, and you know, and, and and we have to bear in mind too the remote nature of this of of this project. I mean, this project is in you know, uh, in a beautiful location, um, but it's quite uh, it's quite far removed from the traditional um, urban and commercial hubs in the country. So, you know, people thinking, well, I, it just adds to the to the potential risk associated with investments in this new initiative. It is it is fascinating. You know, in ten years, we'll look back and we'll see which you know which horses you wanted. You know, that you, you were you know if you bet on were successful or not. I mean, you've got the, as you say, breaking it apart, this air power, this the, the green hydrogen initiative, you know, a $5 billion effort trying to do uh, extraordinary uh, you know, number of gigawatts, I think two gigawatts of, of power, four gigawatts of renewable power needed just to produce what they want to be. And they're thinking they're going to start producing in 2026. I mean, that's one track. Um, you know, they have an energy and water, uh, an OWA uh, track. Uh, Oxagon, of course, is one of its own. You know, it may be that they, they're very going very heavily into a media city. In essence, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that sticks before anything else. It's it it is, it, it, you know, I wouldn't want to be the one to pick and choose because I'm not capable or qualified to do it. Yeah. But it leads me to my next question because when you talk about government, you know, uh, you know, involvement. I mean, essentially, it's not essentially, but largely, we're talking about the public investment fund as the primary vehicle for um, achieving, pursuing, and underwriting, you know, top government initiatives. Uh, you're working on a, um, on a, you know, you're working on an edited book on sovereign wealth funds in the region. I've always thought rightly or wrongly that PIF is quite a unique kind of enterprise. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything, a sovereign wealth fund that active domestically uh, while also carrying on, you know, its mandate you know, in terms of international investments. Can you, can you talk, and, but also to finish that, you see PIF not only, you know, leading the charge in certain sectors, but also sort of redistributing in other sectors. They just, you know, they just sold 10% of uh, their holdings in Tadawa, the, the stock market. Um, you know, they're looking at divesting in some certain investments that are Ramco related, uh, sort of moving these things back into the market, private sector, equity investors, that sort of thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about PIF in this environment? Because they are so integral. Well, they absolutely are, Richard. I mean, PIF, the Public Investment Fund, is really the financial engine of Vision 2030. 
So if you dig deep enough into Vision 2030 and you get to the layer where you're you're looking at um, key companies that have been created uh, under Vision 2030 or that are intended to uh, to move forward the the vision, if you look at mega projects or giga projects that are included as some of the key initiatives or key projects under Vision 2030. Uh, in many cases, you will find that uh, the public investment fund has either single-handedly uh, created and owns uh, these companies and these initiatives, or has been involved in one way, shape, or form, whether it's kind of facilitating the partnership with other partners um, to, to launch uh, a given entity or, or a given project. And even in cases where you might not find the public investment fund's um, footprint, Today, there's a good likelihood that discussions with investors uh, has included the prospect that the public investment fund may be involved in the future or is operating in this space, or there is essentially um, you know, a, a number of different ways that the public investment fund can incentivize different investments and, and help to facilitate investments. And, and they have been doing so um, you know, in a way that you might think um, in a manner that you might think would be would be the domain of the Ministry of Investment in Saudi Arabia it does have a Ministry of Investment, and to my and it's it's my understanding that they that that officials actually work um, pretty closely with each other in that respect um, to try to help facilitate investments, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or 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 looking outside of Saudi Arabia. Um, so, in terms of uh, the Public Investment Fund's commitment to Neom, though. Um, we did hear from Mohammed bin Salman that uh, he expects the public investment fund um, to be one of a number of regional sovereign wealth funds that would be uh, invested in. I mean, the, the PIF is invested in Neom and owns Neom, but he expects that other sovereign wealth funds in the region would also uh, invest in Neom. I am a little skeptical of that. There may be some um, smaller symbolic investments in Neom uh, as a way to, you know, for in the spirit of economic cooperation and um, and essentially to to support uh, show show some symbolic support and political support for uh, for MBS. But so if you look across the region, sovereign wealth funds are managing the same type of concerns that we see in Saudi Arabia, but not necessarily. Um, approaching their role in, uh, in in regional economies in the same way. They're saying, okay, we have domestic uh, economic concerns, but in many countries like Kuwait, for example, um, or in the UAE, they have pretty strict rules in place um, and, and plans that they, uh, different approaches that, that they follow to ensure that their um, financial resources that are in sovereign wealth funds are invested in places where they think that they're going to get the most bang for their buck um, that are in many cases outside of uh, the Gulf region and outside of the Middle East and North Africa to help diversify away from uh, from a region that is still in many cases largely dependent upon oil and gas. So we still we see a lot of uh, you know sovereign wealth holdings in the US and in Europe, for example. But that's not the case with uh, with with um, Saudi's uh, public investment fund. There is an increasing demand uh, on the sovereign wealth fund to invest more within Saudi Arabia and to be more active. Um, and you know, 
at the end of the day, the public investment fund, it is a large fund. The asset size keeps growing. I think the latest that I came across was somewhere in the um, mid 600 billions, depending on what estimates you look at. Um, that's, you know, that that's that's a large uh, chunk of, uh, of assets, but it's not enough to accomplish everything the Saudis want to do. Um, and I, I, I do get the sense that um, the public investment fund might be uh, involved in more domestic initiatives and projects um, than it can realistically be a pragmatic and uh, beneficial uh, investor in. That and at some point there is going to need to be uh, there's going to need to be need to be substantial investment from other sources beyond the public investment fund, and that's why you're hearing Mohammed bin Salman making the pitch that we need to float a number of projects, we need to you know have uh, IPOs, new share offerings, uh, and also we need to drive investment from some of our uh, you know neighboring sovereign wealth funds. Uh, they they need to do it. That's that's what it comes down to. Yeah, it's remarkable in the sectors where where. Uh... PIF is quite uh, intentionally and and uh, taking a position as a loss leader. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the you know you could argue the lucent investment is a loss leader. You know, out of the gate, you know, the live, which is you know the golf initiative, you know, a loss leader initially, uh, but on down the line where they are they are essentially trying to make a market. Um, and yeah, exactly. They need they need other investment sources to swing in behind that to really make it sustainable. But it speaks to, I think, what you were talking about when you were referencing the Petro Diplomacy Conference. And uh, last week in uh, our One Big Thing episode, Lucia and I were talking about one of the interesting results of this fallout of the uh, October 5th OPEC Plus decision to reduce their quota by 2 million barrels per day end of you know the firestorm in the US is after that calmed down a little bit you actually had some some found some pretty good analysis about why Saudi Arabia does this you supported this and why in terms of its domestic priorities it's so important because they're really far out on the ledge in terms of investments in terms of its goals in terms of its projects and they need to sustain this revenue for as long as it's possible to sustain this revenue um, and I referenced a couple, and one of them, Kristen, uh, Kristen Smith Dewan, is in your shop over at uh, Arab Gulf States. She wrote a good piece for for Arab Gulf States in Washington, and Karen Young also wrote a good piece for Foreign Affairs. Um, the so anyway, uh, that's one good result from our perspective, since we watched the Saudi discourse and Saudi U.S. discourse, you know, closely. It seemed like there was a trickling out of some more thoughtful analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and your take, but your take on that, uh, you know, how long, uh, uh, you know, in terms of Saudi policy with regard to energy, and they are in COP twenty seven now, and they're they're getting a little bit of flack because they've they continue to say, let's let's not just look at eliminating emit emissions, let's look at mitigating you know emissions across the board, you know, environmental planting trees, this sort of thing, carbon capture. Um, What's your sense and as a political economist that they can hold out against these very negative global winds? Uh, you know, the, the, the IMF just downgraded their predictions again, a very gloomy report to the COP27 and the G20. Um, you know, how long can Saudi Arabia hope to maintain these, these, and OPEC, these levels in terms of energy? 
Well, the, the Saudis have to hold out because, at least for the moment and for the foreseeable future, the majority of government revenues are still coming from the oil and gas sector. So despite all of the rhetoric about moving to cleaner and greener fuel and 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 focusing on renewables, which, of course, that's going on um, and, and that should be applauded and having plans uh, to, to move toward you know, carbon neutrality and net zero and uh, reduce methane, all of that is it's, it's great. It's great stuff to implement ESG frameworks within uh, your sovereign sovereign wealth fund. That's that's excellent, too. I mean, it's, it's not going to hurt. But the reality is, is if you look at the budget figures and you break down where the money is coming from and you follow the money, um, the largest chunk of public sector revenues are coming are continue to come from the oil and gas sector. Um, now, as a percentage of GDP, that has uh, decreased and and is likely I don't have the exact figures on me, but uh, is not a the majority of GDP. But as far as government officials are concerned. Um, the revenues that they're receiving to ensure that the state continues to function, to ensure that public sector employees continue to be paid, to ensure that the range of benefits and transfers to citizens continues to move ahead. Um, all of that is still heavily dependent upon the oil and gas sector. So what I had tried to emphasize in my remarks at the uh, at the Petro Diplomacy event um, that you're referencing, is that really there are kind of two important um, ideas we have to keep in mind when we assess uh, the Saudi government's um, behavior, especially behaviors that um, you know move to to the international stage and then are uh, you know are, are are viewed and treated and analyzed in a very different light. The first is that is just this continued oil uh, dependence on oil and gas. That public sector revenues are still highly dependent upon oil and gas. It influences how they think about the budget, how they think about their fiscal health uh, in a direct way. But it also has an indirect impact on um, citizens' welfare, the ability of the government to uh, to ensure that citizens and residents um, you know, have a high degree of welfare. And then also, it has an, an indirect impact on a whole bunch of other sectors. Um, if the oil and gas sector is doing very well, if energy prices are high, if there are reports that you know, there's major quarterly um, government surplus that gives the Saudi uh, that that gives the Saudi government and Saudi Arabia substantial momentum at a time when we look across the globe. There aren't a lot of reasons to be really optimistic and to be excited about uh, you know about the state of a particular economy. So the Saudi the Saudis are saying, yeah, this is where we're getting a lot of that positivity. We're getting a lot of momentum. And that, you know, has uh, that certainly has a trickle down effect on other parts of the economy and the society and in other industries. I worked in the region in the Middle East, in North Africa, in particular in uh, in Dubai, in the aftermath of the 2014 and 2015 uh, oil price crash. And I can tell you that, you know, the, there was this long sobering up period after that, where it was basically momentum came to a big, you know, crashing halt. Uh, and there were there was a period of austerity, and that is not what the Saudis want at this moment. They want the momentum to keep going. They want growth rates to to remain healthy. So that's the first point that's that's um, that's critical to keep in mind. And then the second point is just what are uh, what are the the Saudi economic policymakers trying to achieve at this point in time? And and we talked about it a little bit before, so I won't 
um, beat a uh, beat a dead horse here. But essentially, 2020 was hunker down, get through the coronavirus, make sure we can you know keep the government running and people healthy as healthy as possible. 2021, it was all about economic recovery. Um, how can we get the economy back, uh, you know, back on track? 2022, things are looking better. Um, oil prices are doing better. There's more, um, you know, there's there there are more financial resources to play with. So at the moment, we're coming out of this period. The last couple of years, where really um, the Saudi policymakers, regional policymakers, and be quite honest, uh, those here in Washington and in European capitals as well. We've had our heads down to say we got to make sure that uh, you know that we take care of ourselves first and foremost um, before looking up and then and saying, well, what are the implications for my neighbors or what are the implications for someone on the other part of the globe? So I wouldn't say that uh, we're quite out of the woods to the degree that Saudi uh, policymakers, based on their conception of where their economy stands, where their competitive advantage stands. Um, allows them to put aside what they what they perceive to be essentially, um, you know, top priority, you know, top economic priorities for the good necessarily of a partner or the good of the global economy. I still see a lot of a lot of the activities being driven by domestic uh, domestic concerns and achieving domestic interests. You uh, you reference and sort of lead us into the uh, a topic that Lucia and I discuss on this, in that we've been very heartened by uh, the fiscal discipline shown by Saudi Arabia, but others. And you wrote a piece for Al Monitor a couple months ago, um, in which you you sort of noted that uh, you 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 acknowledge this that there seems to be a, a even with the revenue windfalls, there seems to be some fiscal caution throughout the Gulf. You said, uh, and the, the utilization, utilization of newfound financial resources will range from boring and practical, Oman and Bahrain, to slightly more experimental and riskier, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Can you expand a little bit, at least on how the Saudis are approaching their new, they'll have a budget surplus this year, I think, of what, $24 billion? Yeah, we have to, I've been following the quarterly data data on this, on this front. Um, it's, they're going to have a, a substantial uh, budget surplus. Um, we'll have better clarity on on the figures um, as as we wrap up the year and at the beginning of uh, of next year. Uh, the point is, is this has been the first surplus in in quite some time, and um, so that's that's great news. The um, the uh, I guess the it's not cause for concern, but what is absolutely on the minds of uh, you know of the committees putting together these budgets and the Saudi and Saudi policymakers is that okay, it's you know our our fiscal situation is is quite good this year but last year it wasn't great it was it wasn't terrible it wasn't great and the year before that it was it was pretty dire so you know in the not too distant past everyone was really scrambling so and 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 they haven't forgotten that and that's why we have seen uh, you know prominent officials coming out and saying we are we are not going to make substantial changes to our our budget Based on these surpluses, even though things have continued to to to, to stay um, pretty good on the fiscal front for for the Saudis, of course, there's been some volatility in in energy prices. But on the whole, the picture, the fiscal picture, has been looking pretty good. And I would say that that's a smart move on the Saudis' part. That they're saying we're not going to make major adjustments this year. Um, 
any big um, spending initiatives and big changes in how we in, in how we utilize those surpluses, we're going to try to uh, to implement those in 2023. Um, with the idea being to have a, a little bit of a, a sense of perspective about the year and how things are looking and the forecast for 2023 and onward. Um, well, it seems to be, uh, a, a, I, I applaud the move and I, I think they're actually projecting reduced, slightly reduced spending next year, but you know, they, they, they uh, sort of uh, published or announced their projected budget, I think in September, October, which is a wonderful way to signal the markets about what you're going to be doing. Um, so I, I, it seems to me that they, they're really working hard to try and avoid that, you know, the boom bust cycle that we've always seen in, in, uh, oil producing states. The, the other point, Richard, I mean, what we've seen for some time in Saudi Arabia has been a willingness to move some of the expenditures, capital expenditures in particular off of the formal government budget and toward other entities like the public investment fund, for example, or, um, I mean, so in some cases you have um, direct, you've had direct transfers or loans uh, from the central government to the PIF that have enabled the PIF to utilize those financial resources. You have had government announcements that the PIF is going to inject $40 billion into the domestic economy. Um, and a annually, I think annually, several. yes, yeah. annually to, to my mind, the public investment fund officials take that seriously and are trying their best, um, to, to do that. A, a good reference point for that $40 billion price point is actually during the peak of inward foreign direct investments in, I believe 2008 or 2009. If we look back the past couple of decades, the peak year of inward FDI registered around $40 billion. And that was at a time where arguably there was kind of unsustainable, um, it was an unsustainable investment flow and, and you know, at the height of the bubble. Um, it's decreased substantially since then. And over the past few years, even reached kind of just single digits. Um, mm -hmm. This past year in 2021 was a bit higher uh, after a couple of big deals. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, that this it does go a long way to show that when the FDI isn't coming coming through in the ways that necessarily um, Saudi officials might want, they're going to look for other ways to to bulk up those investments in the domestic economy. And the PIF is the most obvious uh, is the most obvious target at the moment to, uh, well, to encourage them to do so. I mean, it's a great point, and and Aramco falls into that sort of multi tool and Sabic uh, as well asset too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know because that that you know that last year's FDI twelve billion of that I think was the Aramco pipeline deal. That's right. And, you know, just around, I mean, to round out this point, the um, the government has been encouraging national champions like Saudi Ramco. I mean, to use their words, national champions, Saudi Ramco, Sabic and others to be more active in the domestic economy, to find creative ways to, um, yeah, to to essentially invest in the local uh, in the local economy, to invest in um, in companies, to invest in people and. Uh, yeah, it's 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 hard to get an exact sense of how that ranks when you're talking about you know the movement of of capital expenditures off of official government ballots uh, balance sheets and to these companies, uh, but it's definitely a process that is taking place. You know, in, in some respects, it's good. It, it I think it allows the government to to streamline some of its activities. It makes the government balance sheet a little bit more manageable and uh, and certainly look better. 
you know, the, the one risk there is that you get the government, you get this sense that the government is uh, intervening in, uh, you know, in the affairs of certain private sector companies now um, or private companies. Now, some of these companies uh, that we're talking about, the government is a major shareholder in the companies to begin with. So uh, I don't think that there's necessarily a huge problem with that as things stand now. But if we look at a scenario down the road where a number of these entities want to offer more shares to investors beyond the government, so you have more non-governmental shareholders, those shareholders may have a different uh, understanding and perception of the you know the costs and the benefits of government intervention or you know it, government encouraging these companies to you know to act this way or that way in the domestic economy. So these are some of the tricky. These are going to be some of the the the, the tricky balancing acts that uh, Saudi policymakers are going to have to think about when they are engaging with uh, you know with some of these national champions, and also when they're looking at how they engage with the public investment fund. Yeah, just to just to finish that thought, I mean, so much of that in terms of of trying to engage these these quote unquote private companies like uh, you know Aramco, Sabic, and that sort of thing, it's a huge part of their national investment strategy. Um. I think that Sharik program is roughly 40% of the total they try and eventually get. My point being is it's a bit like what we were talking about earlier with Neom and other things. You know, we have the goals, we have the framework, the metrics and that sort of thing. But, you know, the actual follow on in terms of of, of non-governmental or PIF investment is going to be. It'll be told when it's told. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um the other one one point about neom uh that we haven't quite discussed too is the desire in saudi arabia for you know massive influx of uh, of of not only tourists but new residents i mean if you go back to some of the um some of the uh, some of mohammed bin salman's uh, interviews and statements that he's mentioned um, he really envisions a country that is going to be a very cosmopolitan, um, a cosmopolitan country with a massive influx of, of foreigners. Of course, mm-hmm. the Saudi population is a large population. It's a growing population. But the type of growth that he envisions, not only in the traditional, uh, you know, in the capital of Riyadh, but the, in also other traditional urban um, you know, uh, urban and commercial hubs, but in these newly uh, created uh, spheres of the country, Neom and and uh, all of the other projects along the Red Sea, um, there is the hope and there is a concerted effort being made uh, to attract millions of people uh, to come to relocate, not just to visit uh, for a one-off visit to Saudi Arabia, but to come to Saudi Arabia to live and to work uh, and to you know, and to take advantage of all of the new entertainment and cultural offerings, and you know that, to my mind, is one dimension of this whole development story that um, doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Um, and perhaps because it hasn't happened yet, but it's that's what they're hoping for. It, yeah, you make a very good point. So I'm, I'm bumping into Lucian here, but. But th- I think this is a very important missed artifact from what they envisioned the line, because because MBS specifically said that um, you know they want to get to nine million in in the line by twenty forty five. So that's what their hope is. But his goal for twenty thirty is is fifty million people, half Saudis, just to say, and half foreigners living in the kingdom. 
Uh, and you know, by 2040, he hopes to have hundred million people. It's, it's, you know, it, it's really, I think, shocking for people who have been paying attention to Saudi Arabia to see this, this vision, to hear this vision. And it involves so many, you know, non-Saudis, you know, this is a country that's been very close for, for generations. And, and now it's vision of the future includes 50% non-Saudis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very much a missed point on all this. Yeah. And you know, some of my past articles for AGSIW, um, you can find some of the figures there. I do reference um, some of Mohammed bin Salman's statements and other official statements that look at that um, projected uh, growth in population. I think you're right, Richard. At a certain time in 2030, we're looking at this uh, parity or um, between the uh, the number of of, of Saudis and, and and non-Saudis. Now, who knows if it will exactly pan out that way? Right. Can't control um, you know can't control uh, those factors to to that degree. But if it if something like that happens in and around that time period, or even you know further along, that's going to be a very very um, interesting demographic transition for the country, where you're going to mm-hmm. potentially set it on a path where there will be um, this country will have more uh, foreigners than or expatriates uh, than Saudi citizens. And conceivably beyond that, perhaps more more importantly, is that those expats and those, uh, you know, those, those foreign residents, they will have come as part of this Vision 2030 and presumably will be expected and interested in continuing to be part of that trajectory. Uh, so they're not necessarily, I mean, it, we're looking at a, a somewhat of a different paradigm, not necessarily the paradigm that we think about expatriate workers in the Gulf, lower skilled, low income workers, you know, um, coming into essentially uh, facilitates uh, the development of these uh, of these um, societies and economies over the course of you know from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The vision is for uh, a different type of uh, you know of of, um, of investor of resident with more income, higher skills, uh, and a willingness to essentially lay down roots um, in Saudi Arabia. Either as you know, as a first or primary home, or as you know, um, you know, perhaps a, a, having a second home, um, and to really be part of uh, a Vision Twenty Thirty. So, I look ahead, and I'm not sure if it's going to actually pan out that way. But if it does, it will really transform the demographics. And we know, I mean, people say that there's there's an economic tra- uh, transformation happening. That's absolutely it can't be denied. There's a social transformation happening. But um, what's underlying all of this is the prospect of a very substantial demographic transformation as well. Mm-hmm. Robert, I feel like we could fill another several hours with you. Um, we're just bumping up against our time sure. limit here, but I want to ask one final question. Um, and I know this is sort of a broad stroke here, but uh, Xi Jinping is set to visit Saudi Arabia in, uh, in December. Um, sort of rumors have been trickling out to that effect, but Adel al seemed to confirm it today. As a broad sort of stroke, is this China seeing an opportunity stepping in after the U.S.-Saudi sort of um, issues in September? Or uh, is it China looking to capture some of the market share? I mean, what, can you tell us a little bit uh, what you know behind this visit and what um, is significant about it? 
Short answer is no. I, I don't buy into the whole um, the, the narrative of China trying to fill the void uh, necessarily, or at least I don't buy it um, hook, line and sinker. And here's why. Because the Chinese have been trying to get their Gulf partners, of which Saudi Arabia and probably and Saudi Arabia and the UAE are the most important, um, have comprehensive strategic partnerships, um, to make a more visible showing of the importance of their of of relations for some time and they've been apparently to to my knowledge and from from some conversations i've had with uh with, with different folks here in dc there have been a number of official correspondences tr- throughout 2020 and 2021 saying we need to find ways for for you to essentially um, you know, show us that this that you know partnerships with the Chinese, with Chinese companies, with investors, with Beijing uh, is important to you. That this is an important part of, of 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 our relations. This, if you remember, culminated with a quasi coordinated uh, delegation of foreign ministers that uh, from the Gulf that had took a tour of um, they traveled to China and and, and probably traveled to other um, Asian countries as well. But the primary destination was uh, to, to China. Um, and then you had, in addition to some uh, Gulf countries, I think foreign ministers of Iran and Turkey also attended too, to just to make sure there was that that good healthy balance that they like to uh, to maintain in, in the Middle East. To my, you know, it's my understanding that the outcome of that, of those visits was going to involve a high level senior, you know, return leg. And that wasn't going to happen until after the National Congress concluded. And we saw uh, Xi, you know, securing the long term uh, political leadership that he certainly was angling for with that behind having happened very clearly and without any kind of uh, without any doubt. Uh, I suspect that plans that were in in place for some time are finally now be able to be um, you know finalized and, um, and and made more concrete. So, you know, is this happening at a time when there are significant uh, tensions between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia? Absolutely. So, is this happening at a time where there are tensions, you know, between the U.S. and China? Absolutely. Is it easy to kind of say? There must be, you know, more than just coincidence to the timing of this trip. And is the is China really trying to angle and take advantage of tensions in these relations? Maybe there's a little bit of that, but I don't think that that um, I don't think that that explains the whole picture. I mean, Saudi Arabia, whether it's um, looking at China as an uh, you know as an energy partner, looking at as an investment partner, looking beyond traditional oil and gas, and thinking about. How the heck they're going to accomplish, you know, renewable energy targets? I mean, you've got to believe they're thinking. Well, the Chinese are going to help us with that. Uh, and then on top of it, we all know that there have been tensions between uh, between Riyadh and and Washington. And Saudi Arabia, like other Gulf countries, has been willing to, in some cases, play the China card too. And and what I mean by that is saying, look, we have. Uh, a number of other partners beyond just Washington that we not only you know have to work with, but we want to work with, um, you know, because that's just how they see their worldview. And you know, my colleague um, Kristen, I believe she she tackles this in in in, in some of her publications. Will do a better job than my you know really brief uh, remarks here at the end of the podcast. But um, 
you know, this is an important relationship from an economic point of view, from a diplomatic point of view, um, and into other domains as well. So, yeah, it, it, a visit like that is, is certainly going to be treated very seriously in Riyadh. It's not going to be ignored. Um, you know, and 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 the Saudis are willing to tolerate some the criticism that's going to um, inevitably come with with such a visit. Robert Mogul Nicky, senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, adjunct professor at Georgetown and GW in DC. Robert, thank you so much. We promise we will not put so much time in between your visits. Um, we would love to have you back. This has been wonderful. <laughs> yeah, thank absolutely. you very much. You're well, with past if past this prologue, your 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 2023 is going to be enormously successful after having been on the 966 again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I'll let you know how it goes. Well, we'll be watching. Thank you so much for being with us, Robert, again. It's my pleasure. That was our awesome conversation with Robert Mogulnicki. He's just such a good guest. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us. Richard, what do you think? I think it's time for Saudi in a minute, Yoba. People probably don't like that, that are listening to this with their AirPods in. They're like that. I had a friend, I had a friend ask me, what does yellow mean? And I said, well, you know, you know, like, let's go, you know, it's, you know, and it's intended to mean sort of, you know, you know, it's, it's time to go. It's kind of quickly and let's yeah, go. Yeah. Fast pace. Yeah. Fast pace. Yeah. That's, a, that's the term. And, but he was going, why do you do that? <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea, but we think it's hilarious. So my apologies. <laughs> It is hilarious. (laughs) And it's something that our repeat guests get to look forward to every week. So, All right. Number one of Yalla, Saudi in a minute. Funding for a green hydrogen plant at Saudi Arabia's Neom almost done. The financing for a green hydrogen plant in Neom in Saudi Arabia is set to be one of the world's largest, uh, um, may be completed in the coming months, according to Aqua Power uh, Company. Construction of the $5 billion project in the northwest of the kingdom has started, and it's, quote, very much on track, unquote, to be finished on schedule in 2026, uh, said Patty Padmanathan, chief executive officer of Aqua. Patty P. Patty P. Um, This is, he's everywhere. (laughs) Um, Saudi Arabia really wants to be a main exporter of hydrogen in the world. Um, Richard, you know this very well. It only emits water vapor when it's burned. So it's less polluting than oil, gas, coal. What is what causes a green footprint is the input into it to make it. So if it isn't solar or renewable, then it is not as clean. So this is going to be an expensive, you use the word loss leader a lot, Richard. It's going to be an expensive first experiment, but the world's going to benefit from this. Um, the equity partners have put in 900 million of their own money um, here. So, yeah, I mean, this... Uh, <laughs> They're going to do it. And this is very exciting because once they prove it out and once they build it and have a lot of learned um, tech that comes from this, I think the world's going to benefit from this. But this is expensive. Yeah, um, it's hydrogen is the next generation fuel in large part because it's, you know, it's, it has a density comparable, you know, a density that that is in the same world as as fossil fuels. And so it can be used as a transportation fuel on, you know, ships, air, airplanes, that sort of thing, um, industries. Uh, so it's definitely considered, you know, the next big market in many ways. But I think we misspoke on that because according to the numbers, this would be the world's largest green hydrogen project. 
involving four gigawatts of renewable power. And as you mentioned, you know, if it's if it's green because all the inputs are green, so it has to be renewable. Uh, up to 600 tons per day of hydrogen produced, and uh, approximately five million tons of of CO2 emissions avoided and also up to 1.2 million tons of ammonia exported per annum. So, um, and we talked, remember we talked about the, the relationship with, um, with Greece and the proximity of NEOM and, and the EU markets. And, and this is a very big part of it. You know, the fascinating thing is, and we'll get into this because we have a, another yellow, but I'll end up saying it twice. Because I, I've said this before, and I think it's fascinating that they're sort of making bets across the spectrum. I mean, they're in, you know they're increasing their their crude uh, oil production, they're increasing their natural gas production. Um, in that, in the east, again on the Gulf side, um, the it's going to be blue hydrogen, which is carbon capture. <clears throat> so that's what Jafura is about, and this will refer to a later yellow. Um, in the and now you know we just mentioned that Korea. South Korea is planning on coming in and doing a green hydrogen project on the east uh, east side. Again, these are things that obviously have more proximate to Asian markets, whereas NEOM, a green hydrogen project, proximate to EU. Um, so, and of course, there's the renewables that they're going after. So th- there's a whole bucket of of things they're putting their their bets on, and it's fascinating to watch. Uh, and it, it, again. It was an interesting comment uh, about this article that prompted us to put this in yellow. And I'll just quote it. This project is based on proven technology. So in other words, this is the green project. So there's an electrolyzer and other things. Uh, But novel aspects include the integration of these technologies, particularly at this scale. And util- utilizing ammonia to transport the hydrogen for the mo- mobility market globally. So they'll they'll export the ammonia, which would be you know converted into hydrogen on the receiving end. But so that's the thing that's in play here, and that's the thing is to do these things at this scale, and you know work your way towards um, a profit. You know somewhere something that's that's economically viable. Um, it's a huge endeavor. It's a huge commitment. And I love it that, you know, right at the heart of it is a very large American corporation, Air Products. Yep. I was just about to say that. That's that's a really good point, Richard. I'm not going to add to that because that's that's brilliant. Um, the only, well, let me add one thing. Um, we've had so many great guests that have sort of talked a little bit about this. Adam Siminski from Capsark, David DeRoche mentioned this as well, Kate Dorian, uh, Energy Reporter. We've had so many good ones on, and, and they've all sort of touched on how important this could be if successful. Um, and we're talking a really long timeline here for, like you said, profitability, because it hasn't really been done at the scale. Anyway, good, great point. I'm not going to add to that. Um, <laughs> yellow number two. Oh, did I get ahead of myself? I did not. Okay. Yellow number two. Um, IBM to help tighten Saudi Arabia's cybersecurity as hackers target supply chains. American technology firm IBM Security is seeking to tighten Saudi Arabia's cybersecurity defenses after the Middle East ranked second globally for data breaches. This is according to the company's general manager. The software company also aims to bolster Saudi Arabia's defenses through various programs, including upskilling the kingdom's workforce, ensuring that they're learning from people who have been working in the cybersecurity space for decades. Uh, Let me, you know, we should take a new tactic on this because we've had so many great guests and we've networked and we have them in a, you know, we've either known them or we network to them. And, but now I'm just going to do, start doing shout outs. 
Mr. Fahad Alanazi, general manager of IBM Saudi Arabia, come on the show. You're invited. We'd love to have you to talk about what IBM is doing because you're Join doing us. a lot of interesting stuff in Saudi Arabia. And just like I said in the previous one, we love it when U.S. corporations are doing interesting stuff in Saudi Arabia. So <clears throat> please, Mr. Alanazi, <laughs> come on the 966. You may remember, Lucian, a couple of things in, on this one I thought was interesting. So Mary O'Brien, who was the general manager of IBM Security, U.S.-based, was talking about average cost of breaches, cybersecurity breaches, uh, globally is $4.35 million this year. All right. Interestingly enough, the average cost of a data breach in the kingdom is $7.44 million. I don't know why it's much more expensive, but it's pricey. Um, so, you know, it's a real problem. Um, you may recall after the President Biden visit, I talked about the MOU, IBM's MOU with the Saudi Ministry of Communications and Information. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an important one. It's a five-year MOU. This is IBM. This is why uh, Mr. Fahad Alanazi, you are most welcome. Uh, five-year MOU that uh, is committed to a couple of things. IBM will implement eight innovative initiatives to bolster the king's position in AI, machine learning, cybersecurity, and joint research, innovation accelerators, policy laboratory, and cloud and open technology centers. They'll conduct joint research. Uh, IBM will support multiple projects when, within the public sector, um, including 100 workshops with government agencies. And here's number four, huge. IBM will support the upscaling of 100,000 Saudis focused on, quote, critical areas where use of technology is fundamental, unquote. This is the big deal with cybersecurity, and, and, and there's just not enough skilled uh, professionals around to help companies and help, you know, you, uh, you know, municipals and industry and manufacturing, these sorts of things. And you is very important. And Mr. Fahad Alanazi should come join us on the 966 to discuss this and other things that IBM is doing. This is an official 966 invitation to Fahad Alanazi to join us. And we are going to use this moment to incept him, even though we haven't met him yet. Um, <laughs> we have bring him on. <laughs> <laughs> and answer our questions because this is a very interesting yeah, topic. Yeah, no idea who we are. <laughs> Not we'll, probably get, we'll probably get some sort of restraining order for stalking. <laughs> so what, it's it's uh, 9 p.m. roughly over <clears> there. <throat> so he's in the middle of dinner and he just sat up and he realized <laughs> that he has a new mission. To the the doors. Close the windows, honey. <laughs> um, number three, uh, Saudi Aramco signs agreement to establish carbon capture and storage hub. Saudi Arabia signed a joint development agreement with SLB and LIND to establish a carbon capture and storage hub, which will potentially, potentially be able to safely store up to 9 million tons of carbon dioxide a year by 2027. The company CEO, Amin Nasser, said on Thursday, Aramco is set to contribute around 6 million tons, he added, with the rest to come from other industrial sources. Now, this is 9 million tons a year. The facility will be located in Jabal on the east coast of Saudi Arabia with a goal of making a significant contribution to the 44 million tons the kingdom plans to capture by 2035. I don't have much to add to this story, Richard, but this is amazing. Um, this is an amazing story. Um, it's You just talked about this, but this is like part of this, you know, hands, a million hands in a million different directions to, yeah. to get to help out and, and invest in what is going to be the next three decades of solutions to the problem of climate change. And I just, this is such a cool story. 
It is. And like we talked about, so this is the blue hydrogen side of it. And, you know, the carbon capture at these scales, again, they're not sure they're going to do it. Now, I think the, the, the hope for Saudi Arabia is, all right, we're going to do these at scale. And on the way to achieving this, we're going to learn a, a boatload in terms of technological need and, and, and how to actually do this and, and be the better for it. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. Now, uh, you know, this, this, this carbon capture and where to store it is a fundamental aspect of the whole Jafuro natural gas plant that they're doing, uh, you know, cause you, you, you get the natural gas and you capture the carbon and then you have blue hydrogen and it's interesting. And this is, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> this is another shout out. Another person I would love to have on this show is the, uh, the energy ministry of energy's head of hydrogen. Uh, Zayed El Garib, who's at the uh, has been at the COP twenty seven, is talking about. But he made an interesting point. So, Mr. Zayed El Garib, you're welcome. Please come join us on the night. Join us. He he said the country did not want to differentiate between green and blue hydrogen, both of which, of course, is developing. Instead, just to prefer a focus on on reducing carbon intensity across the board. So you know you know we'll have some blue hydrogen. We'll have some green hydrogen. That's renewable energy, you know, but the whole purpose is to move, you know, move every one of these is less intensive in terms of carbon emissions than, than uh, fossil fuels and crude. So anyway, is I ate out Karib. Come join, join us. us. Yeah. So um, Richard, this is interesting. So I'm trying to put this into scale. Like what is a ton of carbon and what does it mean if it's captured? So the EPA estimates an average gas-powered car that gets 22 miles per gallon emits about five tons um, of carbon dioxide a year, or 4.5 metric tons. Okay, so five tons of carbon dioxide a year. So uh, let's see, divided by nine million tons, that is. Uh, it's got to be four forty-five thousand. Yeah, yeah. forty-five thousand. <clears throat> Sorry, 450,000 cars it's taking out of the contribution to the uh, yeah. carbon dioxide. So that's huge. I mean, that's massive. That's impressive. That's, that's impressive. Yeah. And that's annually too. So wherever this is happening, if this is happening there, it's also what we know is hop- happening in the, in the Gulf Coast, the United States um, and elsewhere. Yeah. Part of the solution mix that's as well. Very cool. 450,000 cars, you said? Yeah, I think so. Right. If it's uh, now, if you were using the the 1970 uh, Mercedes diesel that I drove in graduate school uh, and the amount it emitted, I would I would probably that have to be amended to maybe like 45. Because <laughs> that thing that emitted so much, that diesel emitted so much stuff. Or my 1996 F-150 that. I love so much, but has two gas tanks, and I don't even know the mileage per gallon it gets. Yeah, but your you range start, must be enormous when you start. Well, when you start it up, it just spews a bunch of uh, emissions out, and you can physically see it. It's it's um, it's going to be a relic soon. Um, yeah. It's not a Lucid, which I I'm driving that truck only because the Lucid has not been delivered. So hint, hint. that's true. I've got a uh, you know my truck uh, is emits a little less, but again, it's just a placeholder for the Lucid. <laughs> Uh, Richard, yellow number four, the U.S. and the UAE 
enter a strategic partnership to invest $100 billion in clean energy projects. We got a really good theme going on here today. It's it's future looking, yeah. clean energy, uh, carbon reduction. The United States and the UAE signed a major new clean energy framework named the US-UAE Partnership for Accelerating Clean Energy, PACE, which is set to catalyze $100 billion in financing investment and other support and to deploy globally 100 gigawatts of clean energy by 2035. That's a lot to mm-hmm. advance the energy transition and maximize climate benefits. The US and the UAE will set up an expert group to identify priority projects, remove potential hurdles and measure paces. In addition to investing in both countries' clean energy futures, the two countries intend to elevate climate action by vigorously pursuing and encouraging investment in clean energy in emerging economies. I love this. And <clears throat> the move also supports full-scale civil nuclear civil nuclear cooperation between the US and UAE as atomic energy can decarbonize, uh, decarbonize as well. Um, this is important. This is we talk about this, you know, at the at the high policy level and at, at sometimes at the media and the optics level, you know, there's you know, the US is at loggerheads with these key partners. You know, the UAE is in the US, you know, relationship has been you know, has its moments. Obviously, the U.S.-Saudi one has its moments. But, you know, the Saudis at least would look at this and go, yeah, why don't we do that? But this was an interesting comment about this. Uh, Abdul Khalik Abdullah, who's an influential Emirati political commentator, noted about this PACE partnership and this commitment. He said, look, it's huge, it's important, and it sends an eloquent message. This is him talking, quote, the UAE's partnership with Russia and China is strong, but the partnership with America is stronger. And this is the sort of partnership we want to see with Saudi Arabia, the forward-looking, next-generation, diversified economy, you know, investment abroad, investment at home, global picture partnership. Um, so I, I think, you know, that's why we included it, because it, it's a really interesting um, model an uh, attractive model and promising model. Very promising. Um, the U.S. currently produces 200 gigawatts of total clean power capacity today. So this would be a 50% increase in just in cooperation with the UAE, which is impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, 100, 100 gigawatts is a lot, Richard. Um, that's, yeah. that's really cool. Of course, the UAE, they had a very, there's a story actually that came out, Richard, right after we published on Friday, um, our newsletter, but about the UAE potentially meddling in the U.S. election, which was not cool if they did that. Um, yeah. And was, you know, a, a rare hit of bad press for the UAE here, who has, does such a good job on PR in the district. Um, so, yeah, but this is cool. This is this is very promising. And you're right, Richard, we got to see more of this stuff done with Saudi Arabia as well. Yeah. Number five, Goldman Sachs is hiring in the Middle East to tap deals deals and fund flow. Goldman Sachs Group Inc. is expanding across the Middle East as growing foreign interest and positive economic factors prompt a boom in deal-making and a flow of funds into the region. The Wall Street firm sees private wealth as a, quote, big area of opportunity, unquote, and is hiring wealth managers in the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Zayed Khaldi, co-head of Goldman Sachs in the Middle East and North Africa, said in an interview, the bank is the bank is also recruiting for investment banking, sales, and trading, as well as Islamic finance, where it's seen rapid growth. Yeah, David Solomon spoke at the FII a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, this is more of the C to C uptick in activity between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. We've been seeing, but also, um, like the blurb mentions here, 
Um, this is a big, going to be a big market in Saudi Arabia in the coming decade. So it's not just Goldman Sachs, it's uh, Lazard and other banks as well are kind of all doing the same thing, saying, hey, there's a lot of opportunity here. We need to up our presence in the kingdom. Uh, yeah, Caldi added, quote, money is coming in because of the positive macro. It makes sense for money to be deployed here and there is growth. Uh, Goldman Sachs has more than doubled its headcount in recent years and uh, plans to move into a bigger office next year and to have more capacity to grow further. Um, absolutely. Uh, I, if I can may, I'd add two thoughts to this. Um, interesting article in Business World by a guy named Andrew Massigan, who I don't know. Um, he talks about the economics of building big in the Middle East. You know, he, he sort of looks at these projects and, you know, he sort of goes through, you know, there's prestige, there's money that needs to be invested, there's this and that. But he said there's a there's a component here. And I say this because Goldman Sachs is in Saudi Arabia, A, because of money, B, because it's being spent. Uh, and, and, you know, in large part on these major, major uh, infrastructure projects. Uh, these quote-unquote giga projects as well as all of So these are huge ongoing investments and commitments made by Saudi Arabia, which is attracting, attracting people. But anyway, going back to this Business World article, um, <clears throat> let me quote from it. He says, prestige projects infuse capital, talent, and new productive capacities to the host country, thereby enabling them to diversify. From only oil and gas, Middle Eastern economies leverage upon expensive engineering projects to become specialists in a varied range of products and services. Attracting foreign businesses also helps build a population of young, talented, high-earning immigrants who help fire up consumer demand. Um, and I offer that because, again, I think people look at it and go, you know, Saudi Arabia is building this and that. But there's also an economic reason for it because you are attracting top talent. They are coming to live in your country. Um, and I'll add one other thing. It's an investment monitor. <clears throat> they recently did a study. And I'll quote again. In the U.S., the larger states of California, Florida, New York, and Texas each have large foreign-born populations. They are also the largest recipients of U.S. inbound foreign investment. Although there are, there are a few outliers, states with a higher number of foreign-born residents tend to receive more FDI. Um, which is interesting when you link it up with MBS's vision for Saudi Arabia, which is in terms of population is basically 50, 50, you know, 50 uh, native Saudis and, and Saudi citizens and 50% expat. And, you know, as we go further along, we talked about this with Robert Mogonicki in today's in, in this week's episode, as you go further along, the expectation is that labor demographic is going to be less uh, low skill service and that's sort of thing, a more uh, high skill, you know, uh, that that will will add considerably to the to the bottom line of the economy and help expand it. So anyway, uh, I just thought those were interesting in the context of this simple, you know, Goldman Sachs expanding its 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 uh, base and its involvement and its presence in Saudi Arabia, as are many others in many other sectors. They all help. Saudi Arabia move along towards his vision 2030 goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a good point. I mean, the Goldman really also sees too the, the IPO t ripper that Saudi Arabia is on and they see it continuing in the next 12 months. They have a couple of uh, mandates for IPOs in the pipeline as well in the next year. So they're beefing their presence up there. That's a good point though, Richard. Um, 
uh, Goldman Sachs's uh, CEO, David Solomon, is not a golfer. He is a <laughs> he is a DJ and he plays six sets a year. He played Lollapalooza this year, which is just absolutely amazing to think about. Um, he yeah, is, um, he is, he, despite not golfing, he's most welcome on the 966. Yes, David, you have been selected by the selection committee, which yes. is working hard today. Um, You're the only the third one on. today, David. <laughs> Yellow number six, Andy Warhol ex exhibition comes to Saudi Arabia as part of the Al Ala Arts Festival. A 70 work Andy Warhol expedition, exhibition, a word I can't say today, <laughs> is headed to Saudi Arabia this winter as part of the Al, the Al Ola Arts Festival, one of many events in the country intended to boost the nation's cultural standing. Under the title Fame, Andy Warhol and Al Ola, <laughs> the show is being organized by the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh and will be curated by Patrick Moore, that institution's director. The show is due to open on February 17th, 2023 at the Mariah a gleaming mirrored building in the middle of the desert. Of course, <laughs> the exhibition's focus will be the many ways the pop artists depicted celebrities from Muhammad Ali to Dolly Parton, and it will include Warhol's prints, his famed screen tests, and more. It's pretty rad. That's pretty rad. <clears throat> Part of that was to you know have you say Andy Warhol five times in a very short, short uh, blurb. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I and I messed it up pretty No, no pretty, you nailed it. What was the one from earlier, Richard? Uh industry ministry. <laughs> industry ministry. <laughs> um this was added mostly because I mean it's almost passe now. It's like, you know, Andy Warhol and out in Saudi Arabia. Uh and also um uh, Alula, the Alula Arts Festival, Alula Moments. Alula is going hard. Um, they have they have four festivals between uh, uh, basically December next month and the end of March. <clears throat> I mean, they have Winter at Tantora. They have the Alula Arts Festival where Andy Warhol will be a prominent feature. They have Alula Skies, um, which is air balloons, and then they have Alula Wellness Festival. Um, you know, for wellness and yoga and these sorts of things. Uh, just, no, we got to get there. We got to get there. Yeah. And, and I think the winter is when it really picks up. Yeah. Um, Cause I looked the last time I was there to see if there were any flights there and it didn't look like it was as available or accessible, probably because it was 130 degrees <laughs> during the day. Um, yeah. This is just so cool. Al Ola seems so beautiful and what they've done there, I think, um, without seeing it, but just seeing photos has really, um, you know, they didn't turn it into Las Vegas, as we've said on the show before, they sort of kept things as they are. They're trying to build things to fit in, uh, but they do want people to come see it and that requires infrastructure. So, yeah, I mean this, you're right. It's almost passe. It's, it's not three or four years ago, this would be shocking and incredible. And, yeah. and this is still very cool and awesome that they're doing this, but it just shows the pace of, of change and reform and, and sort of progress there. Um, I love that we end always, Richard, on, if we can, on a lighter one. Andy Warhol yeah. and Al Ola is a, is a good one. <laughs> this one, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, this one hung together nicely. Yeah, this was a great show. Richard, thank you very much. So um, we will... Be, and we talked about this right before. We have a really great series of interviews coming up heading into the end of the year. We're not going to reveal any names yet, but it's very exciting. Um, and we will be taking Thanksgiving week off 
Um, we won't be off because we'll be working to record interviews, we will. Richard. We'll be working, <laughs> but um, we will be back. Our production will be back the following week. Um, and thank you very much to Robert Mogulnicki. And Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. Great show. Always fun. Always fun. 67 next week. <laughs> 67 next week. 66 this week. 67 next week. Yes, we do have some fantastic guests coming up. We've had fantastic guests from the outset. On outset, But uh, yeah, exciting. We're, we're going to finish strong. Finish strong. That's right. And then we're starting 2023, which I can't believe we are entering also strong. Yeah. This is strength all around. Plus, we got some new invites out today. We hope to hear from you soon. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Thank you, Lucian.